How would you define self-control? I'm going to give this kind of definition. Self-control is the ability to restrain appetites and desires so that you do not act impulsively. So self-control is the ability to restrain appetites and desires so that you don't act impulsively, but rather you act purposefully towards your long-term goals. Or it's the ability to hold yourself in line with your values. Uh, yeah, self-control is the ability to restrain your appetites and desires so that you do not act impulsively, but rather act purposefully towards your long-term goals or in line with your higher values. I know that's a long definition. That's why I'm going to give you like three. They'll get shorter. That's the longer one. By the way, I wrote these. I, I try to work to put things in my own words when I, when I preach. When I started out preaching, I was always looking for a quote from somebody else that said what I want to say. And then I decided that maybe I could say it as best I could instead. And I find that that's better. Second definition, a little shorter. Self-control is the ability to tell yourself yes or no and obey. There's, that's a lot simpler, isn't it? I can tell myself yes and do it. Or I can tell myself no and not do it. That's self-control. Short-term feelings and desires don't rule over a self-controlled person. That's the third one. Here's a fourth one. The opposite of self-control, because I love working with opposites. You ever notice that? Anytime I try to tell, say what something is, I always try to figure out what it's not, because that helps me. So here's the opposite of self-control, impulsiveness or impulsivity. That's the opposite, right? Two questions then. How do we develop self-control, number one? And number two, how is self-control a fruit of the Spirit? So one, I'm not, we're not going to answer exhaustively either of those questions. We're going to begin to explore both of those questions. So let's start by looking at some positive examples of self-control. I find models really helpful. Uh, Daniel in the Bible he is a prophet. He is a missionary. He's a government official. Think about that. Oh, my goodness. He's a, he's a government, no, I didn't say politician, but a government <laughs> official, right? He's a refugee. Think about that one. He's a prisoner of war. He's uh, one of my favorite examples of self-control. Let's look at just a few of them. Uh, first, his refusal to eat the food that violated Mosaic dietary commandments. He's refusing to eat the food. Why? I, I will not compromise my integrity, no matter what. It takes self-control to stand up. It takes self-control to just follow the diet. It takes even more to follow the diet when you're being threatened to not. How about this one? Three times a day, he gets on his knees and faces Jerusalem to pray. Morning, noon, and night. Three times a day. That's self-control. How about this one? They throw him in a lion's den, and he still doesn't back down. That's some serious self-control. And his reaction to mistreatment doesn't misrepresent the virtue of God. He never dishonors those who are seeking to kill him. 
His character is so beyond a reproach that his enemies don't have anything to do. To, they don't have any dirt to dig on him. They can't find any dirt on Daniel. So they do the only thing they can do. They try to use his integrity against, them, against him. Here's the passage, Daniel 6, 3 through 5. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administration by his exceptional qualities that the king had planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to find anything. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. So finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. That's from Daniel 6. So I think of Daniel as a wonderful positive example of self-control. Here's a secular example of self-control, and it is a Marine named Jocko Willink, and he was one of the Marines that was on, I think, in that little squad that took down Osama bin Laden. I can't remember all he was involved in. He was involved in some seriously major deals, and he was like a squad leader. He's, he wrote this fantastic little book. Well, I say it's little. It's 200 pages, but... The pages are so short because they're more poetry. And I want to read some of his book, Discipline Equals Freedom, to you guys. Just brace yourself. We're talking about a very, very manly man. He's the sort of dude who would get in your face and yell at you. But you would somehow leave feeling like, that's right, here we go. Let's do this thing. We can do it. All right, so just this little chapter is called Stress. First of all, and I don't mean to minimize the stress that people face, but Imagine what Eugene Sledge went through on Pelelau and the tens of thousands of Marines who suffered imaginable horror. Imagine David Haxworth assaulting enemy positions in Korea, wounded over and over on the line and still going back for more. Imagine the poet warrior Alan Seeger in World War I getting ready to go over the top and make his rendezvous with death. Imagine the thousands of warriors who have gone before you, who have stood and faced evil and death. And now imagine you. I used to do this myself while I was in Iraq facing stress. And yeah, we took casualties, and yes, it was awful, and yes, it was heartbreaking, and it was every bit as wretched as I could imagine. But warriors have faced worse, much worse. The Battle of Somme, or Gettysburg, or the Bulge, or Cho the Chosen Reservoir. Humans can withstand almost inconceivable stress, and so can you. And that's your first step. Gain perspective. And to do that, you must do something critical. Detach. Whatever problems or stress you're experiencing, detach from them. Stress is generally caused by what you can't control. And the worst thing about incoming artillery fire is that you can't control it. It's happening and you just have to accept it. Don't stress about things you can't control. If the stress is something that you can control and you're not controlling it, that's a lack of discipline and a lack of ownership. Get control of it and impose your will on it and make it happen. Solve the problem and relieve the stress. But if it's something you can't control, embrace it. You can't control it, but how can you look at it from a different angle? How can you use it to your advantage? I could not control the chaos of combat, so I had to embrace it. I had to figure out a way to take advantage of it and to make it into your ally. Don't fight stress, embrace stress, Turn it on itself. Use it to make yourself sharper and more alert. Use it to make you think and learn and get better and smarter and more effective. Use the stress to make a better you. He would probably be dead now 
If he didn't have these kinds of mindsets, anything that makes for a weak mind makes for a weak soldier. Is he intense or what? One more. This one's called compromise, as in don't. When working with other people and dynamic situations and relationships and deals or people, especially under leaders, you have to compromise. Finding common ground between teams, compromise. Merging different approaches to the same problem, Bridging personalities with people who don't normally get along, compromise. Reaching agreements in a course of action, all of these require compromise. And in many cases, a failure to compromise is a failure to succeed. But those are external compromises with other people, other humans who have their own personalities, their own values, their own issues. You need compromise to unify. So to work with them, compromise is a must, but Internally, it's different. With myself, I hold the line. There are areas within myself where I can not compromise. I am going to work hard. I am going to train hard. I am going to improve myself. I am not going to rest on my laurels. I am going to own my mistakes and confront them. I am going to face my demons. I am not going to give up, give out, or give in. I am going to stand. I am going to maintain my self-discipline. And those are points where there will be no compromise. Not now, not ever. I read the whole book like, <laughs> wanting to get up and punch the wall. Like, ah, you know? I don't want to be Jocko. I don't want to be muscle-bound and up at 4 a.m. lifting weights and put, doing push-ups every day. But I do want to confront the issues that I need to. I do want to have his grit, determination, character, and integrity. I want his discipline. I want his self-control. <laughs> He's intense. There's another chapter that I wanted to read, but I said two is enough. And those are whole chapters. What I just read, like each of those is a chapter. That's why 200 pages flies. Yeah, it's one page of poetry, and he calls it a chapter. That's poetry. And this is how he thinks. The one chapter that I almost wanted to read was um, uh, Never Let Up. Never Let Up. He says when he has soldiers that come back from a mission, they think, oh, we're back at camp safe. And that's when the enemy will attack. Because you just got back from a mission, you're fatigued, and you let your guard down. And when you let your guard down, you make mistakes you would not have made if you had kept your guard up. He said the first thing he does when soldiers get back from a mission is he gives them the next assignment. The, right away. You come home and you begin to work. And so one of the, I, I don't always do this. Sometimes I do. It depends how depressed I am on Sunday. If I get real depressed after a sermon, because sometimes I get real depressed after a sermon, the only thing I know how to do is throw myself into the next project. And that pulls me out of my slump. We humans, we need what's next. We need, we need what's next. I'm trying to convince my dad not to think about retirement as just the end of this. I said, you have to have something that is next, that you're living for, that you're preparing for, that you're working on. What are you gonna do to contribute to society that fits in your wheelhouse next? That's Jocko Willink. My guess is I just sold at least two books tonight with that. I love him so much. If I ever meet him, I wanna hug him and I'll bet you he'll be as firm as a rock and his pecs would punch a blue, you know, get a black eye from him flexing his pec and my, ow! Here's a counterexample, not a good example, a bad example of self-control. This is an example of impulsivity, the opposite. 
Esau sold his birthright. Remember, he comes home from a hunt. He's super hungry. And Jacob, being Jacob, because his name means deceiver, right? Swindler, used car salesman, whatever. Um, God bless the good ones. There's, I'm sure there's some good ones, right? He was so hungry at the moment that he opted. Jacob said, I'll give you some stew. I'll give you this stew if you'll give me your birthright. I'll trade. Your birthright. That's your, like, that's your inheritance. What are you doing? So short-term bowl of soup, long-term, everything my dad will leave me when he dies. What are you doing? It was a good stew. It was like the one I ate tonight. My wife went all out tonight. It was amazing beef stew. I, I, you can't say beef stew and have you get it. It, it, it. Whatever you're thinking, it's better, better than that. The bread, everything was amazing. And she made me thank her. I said, that was amazing. And I kissed her on the neck and she goes, ah, because she's very ticklish. And then she's like, you have to say it. The stew was amazing, and, and the rolls were amazing, and, and the apples with that special sauce were amazing, and the Kool-Aid that Zion made was amazing. Okay, but this then, this story of Esau, short-term pleasure, long-term cost. In the New Testament, they view him as an example, even though his sin wasn't sexual sin, but when the author of Hebrews is looking, what is sexual sin like? It's like Esau. Short-term pleasure, massive long-term cost. What are you thinking? It's a, perfect, it's a perfect connection. Don't be like Esau, they, he says. Don't be sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. Another one, another counterexample of the opposite of self-control would be I'm reading through Proverbs over and over right now because that's part of what Mark Yoder asked me to do. And uh, it's hard not to notice the, the repeated patterns. And one of the repeated patterns is the sluggard. The sluggard lays on his bed and turns on his bed like a door on hinges. The sluggard says, oh, I can't get up and do anything today because... I heard a rumor there's a lion out in the street, so I can't, I can't do, uh, excuse after excuse after excuse to keep you from, oh, it's raining, I can't run, whatever, whatever, bro. And, and you go, oh, that's laziness, that's, that's, that's not that big a deal. No, 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 laziness is same thing. Short-term pleasure, long-term cost, right? And, this, and you know, the Proverbs will say, Okay, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little resting of the, fold of the hands to, a folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like, like a thief, uh, and famine, like hunger, like a, it's bad. <laughs> Consider the ant, O oh sluggard. Like, what are the ants doing? All day, every day. Go, 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 go. And I know that we're like so quick to be like, I'm so bad, I'm always working. Okay, you don't want to be a workaholic, but you don't, you don't want to be a sluggard either. What you want to do is you want to purposefully set about your tasks with diligence. And you've got to know how to say no to yourself and obey and say yes to yourself and obey. Proverbs 18.9, one who is slack in his work is a brother to one who destroys. Let me, here's the new living. A lazy person is as bad as someone actively breaking everything and destroying everything. 
Trying to depend on lazy people makes life a lot harder, which is why the 80-20, the 20-80 rule, if you want something done, find someone who's busy, they'll get it done. Anyone who owns a business is like, yeah, <laughs> that's right. And uh, Tom was telling me, if, you have, if, you have, if you're not a lazy person, sometimes the boss will overload you with stuff and take advantage of that because there's so many worthless workers. But just don't be drunk and show up on time and work hard and you're like amazing and rare and you will rise through the ranks. <laughs> that sounds like the bar is pretty low, right? Show up, don't be drunk, and work hard. Here's a little case study. I tried to quit smoking multiple times and failed. I, I, I couldn't seem to do it. I could not seem to kick it. I mean, I really tried. Like, I remember one specific time in high school when dad was mad at me because he thought I was being a sluggard. And I actually was just sleeping in the middle of the day because I was splitting headache and miserable and cranky from trying to quit smoking. And once he found that out, he was a lot easier on me. Oh, that's why he's so grumpy. And the reason I tried repeatedly to quit smoking is because I did not like that ominous feeling I always had that lung disease, various forms of cancer, emphysema, heart disease were just looming over me for some future day like a slow game of Russian roulette that you're guaranteed to eventually lose. That stressed me out. That really stressed me out. And so I kept trying to quit not being able to succeed. There's a show I love called The IT Crowd. And, and Jan Barber has given up smoking. But then in his death video, the boss uh, says, if you're watching this video, I'm sure these wonderful cigarettes have killed me. Mwah. I love them so much. Glorious, tasty cigarettes. And he takes a big drag and she's watching it. And she's like, oh. and she gets up and walks out of the church service and she finds a cigarette on the ground <laughs> that's like half smoked and disgusting. And she gets it up and she smokes it. And then she stays home from work, calls in sick, and is just chain-smoking in her, in her apartment. It's so, it's so terrible and hilarious and very relatable. So why was I all of a sudden able to quit smoking? Once I actually met God and started to just seek God, I, I came to this understanding that my life's not my own. And I was bought with a price. And then I remember coming across this verse. I didn't even know where. I, today I had to look up, where is this verse? It's in 2 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 13, 11. Paul's just ending the book. And one of the little throwaway lines he has is, aim for perfection. And I'm a baby Christian. And I read that verse, aim for perfection. And I go, I'm, supposed to I'm, I'm actually supposed to try to not sin. In anything that's doubtful, don't do that. In anything that's like, that's a great idea. I should probably do that. Just try. And I'm standing there smoking, thinking, yeah, there's no Bible verse that says don't smoke, but it's bad for my body. And, my, and if I die really young and I cut short my destiny before I'm supposed to die because I'm just like not taking care of my body, that's probably not a very good way to honor God with this temple of the Holy Spirit. So I'll probably quit when this pack is done. So I, <laughs> because I'm a Mennonite and I can't waste something I paid for. So I finished the pack and that was my last cigarette. I, I, did, I did fall a couple times after that, full disclosure. I did, I did smoke a couple more times after that in intense temptation. Uh, those were very short-lived and I, I experienced a whole lot of uh, remorse actually over those falls because I even had bad dreams about like, I'd, recently, 
I think I had a, one of these bad dreams where I dream I'm sinning and I, and I wake up feeling like, oh no. And then, and then I'm like, oh, I didn't. Praise God. I used to have a recurring smoking dream where in my dream I would fall to temptation, I'd smoke, and then I'd wake up feeling terrible, and then I'd be like, it's not real. <sighs> By the way, if, you're, if, you are, if you are a smoker or if you have friends who are, it's not some sort of unforgivable sin, it's just bad for you, <laughs> okay? Just to be clear about that. But why was I suddenly able to quit once I met Jesus? I actually don't have the answer to that fully. I just know that it was a totally different deal. Quitting for my own health didn't seem to, it, it didn't have enough deep motiva- motivation. But quitting to please Jesus somehow did. And, I, and I, don't, I don't know how to answer, I don't know how to work that out. That's fascinating though, isn't it? Here's a way to put it. If you are a civilian, you have to be self-disciplined. If you enlist in the military, Now you do whatever your commanding officer tells you, or you'll be disciplined, and if you still don't respond, you'll be dishonorably discharged. Those are your real options. Something has dramatically changed when you enlist. And for me, saying yes to Jesus was like enlisting. So quitting for me was like super hard. But quitting because my commanding officer said, "Mm." in fact, my whole life shifted. I didn't want to go to Rosedale Mennonite Bible College. Ew. The women wear head coverings and culottes. What's less sexy than head coverings and culottes? And like, they're just weirdos and Mennonites and like, why would I wanna go? I just remember playing ping pong in there when I was a little kid visiting Nate and Karen and some other people who lived. I just go to, but my mom said, I'd like you to go to Rosedale Bible College. And I said, then that's what I'll do because honor your father and mother. I didn't wanna go, but she wanted me to go. And I said, yes, yes, ma'am. Because honoring you is honoring Jesus, and I don't exist for me anymore. My whole thing was not salvation for my sake. My whole thing was get free of Tim in charge of Tim. That's the hell that I wanted to get free of, Tim in charge of Tim. So yeah, quit smoking. Yeah, go to Roseville, even though I didn't want to. I remember I'm mowing the yard one day, and and, and I realized, yeah, my dad really doesn't like my long hair. Hmm, I should honor him, even though he hasn't asked me to cut it. So I cut it, though he, even hadn't, he hadn't even asked me. This is the kind of stuff that made my parents go, ah, uh, this kid's really saved. But, so something there, I was able to break free of some behaviors that on my own, I was not able to break free of. And I don't have all the answers to why that is. Bill W., the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, He had tried and tried and tried to kick alcohol. Alcohol was killing him. He was like 40 years old or 41 years old, and it was killing him. His friends thought this is going to kill him, and he'll never change. You you know you gain a reputation as a drunk when you're a drunk. Hard to buy things, hard to get loans. You're a drunk. And even though you might be a good person, it makes you untrustworthy in certain ways. And that's how people thought about Bill. You'll always be a drunk. This honestly makes me want to cry, just saying that people had such, they, did no, they no longer believed that, in, that he could change. But then he had an encounter with God. He had a friend who was part of the Oxford Club, it was a very committed Christian group, the Oxford Club. And his friend that was a part of this group said, uh, you need to give your life to the Lord. And Bill said, I don't believe the stuff y'all believe in there. 
y'all believe some weird stuff. And he goes, you don't have to believe what I believe, but pray to, the, pr- pray to God as you really understand him. Nowadays, you can twist that into like, you don't have to believe anything. You just believe that somehow there's a, there's a magical piece of pie that will grant you the ability to, that would be taking way out of context what his friend actually told him. Here's how I understand this. It would be more like, I have, I have, close fr- I have a close friend who's a Catholic priest, or actually is a priest. I have a friend who's a Franciscan monk, and I have another friend who, wants to, who basically is on his way to joining the Orthodox Church. Now, I don't believe what either of them believe about a whole bunch of stuff. But we know we have Jesus in common. And it would be like one of them saying to me, you don't have to be a Catholic to pray to Jesus. That's what Bill's friends basically said to him. You don't have to believe just like I believe, but will you reach out to God? You need God, Bill. You need the grace of God. So he went to the hospital because he was like, I'm going to die. And at the hospital, he had this white light enter his room and the white light filled his room and the white light came inside of him and all the desire to drink went away and changed him permanently, left him with a permanent sense of God's presence. Now he drank a few times after that, but he never again was on a permanent bender like he had been. The last time he drank completely was the day that he was like, I have to stop. I have to figure a better way. And they formed Alcoholics Anonymous, a group of people who would gather and support each other. And if you look at the 12 steps, you can see sort of the Christian roots of this thing. The whole point of it is you're not fixing yourself. That's the problem. You're the problem. They had these secular doctors come and study Alcoholics Anonymous and say, look at our unbelievably high success rates compared to other methods of trying to get free. Look at our incredibly high success rates. And you, you guys tell us what's happening. And they said, well, we just call it the X factor. You call it the grace of God. But this is theology and we're not gonna, we're scientists, we're not gonna talk about theology. Self-control. Isn't, what, you hear what I'm really saying here is, there's a, there's a God factor here. How is self-control developed? People think of self-control like a muscle that can be like worked, exercised, and strengthened through use. And that's actually true. But there's another aspect of self-control. Uh, more recent studies have also shown that, yes, like muscles, it can be strengthened through use, right? Like if you memorize scripture and you fast, and you learn to tell yourself no when your stomach is growling and you want food, that same muscle that gets strengthened also then the next time when you're like tempted to, I don't know, say some mean thing about someone when they're not around to your spouse, you go, hmm. And that same thing that enables you to tell your stomach no enables you to tell that dumb thing no as well. But recent studies have shown that not only is it a muscle that can be strengthened, but like a muscle, it actually runs out of, out of steam too. And the more you work it, the less of it you have. It's like a gas tank. And that you're going to run it down if you have to constantly exercise self-control. If you're in an environment that constantly is high stress and requiring you to exert lots of self-control, that's fatiguing. That's not smart. The people who we think of as having the most self-control, when they put like little sensors on them and watch them through the day, they experience less temptation. Think about that. 
they looked more self-controlled and more disciplined. They were actually experiencing less need for willpower. Fighting temptation is a necessary short-term strategy if you can't run away, but the biblical model is to run away. On here, I'm showing a liquor store, which my point is, let's say your temptation is to go back into alcoholism. You should not drive home past a liquor store every day. That's just stupid. You should drive a different route. You certainly shouldn't walk in there and stand there and go and salivate. That would be even dumber, right? What should you do? You should run away. So 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. A way out. Some translations say a door of escape. Doesn't that make you think of Joseph? Potiphar, Potiphar's gone and his wife's like, oh yeah, here's my chance. And she tries to get Joseph to sleep with, that's not literal. That's how the Bible says it's sleep with her. We all know better. There's no sleeping that was in her plan. There was no sleep in her plan. And what does he do? He flees and she's left holding his clothes. That's how aggressively she was going after him. But he runs. That's a smart man right there. A smart man ready to go to jail uh, <laughs> real soon. But flee temptation. I quote this verse all the time. 2 Timothy 2.22. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So you're running away from something, but you're also running after something. There's three pieces to this verse. Flee, pursue, along with. So what's the right response to temptation? Fight it? Well, if you have to, like if you can't flee and you have to fight, fight it. But recognize, fighting sin is the worst of the options. Fleeing sin is always better than fighting it. But don't just flee sin because we don't have a sin-focused life in Christ. We have a Christ-focused life. So pursue, run away from that stuff. Get out of there, just get out. But run after, what are you gonna run after? Righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And then it says this, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. What's that about? The Bible says a companion of fools suffers harm. If you hang out with a hothead, you're gonna develop a temper. If you hang out with people of low character, you're going to develop low character. Your inner circle is massively important. If you want to be wise, hang out with wise people. If you want to be godly, hang out with godly people. If you want to develop faith, hang out with people who are walking in faith. What I'm trying to say here with self-control, developing self-control, that would mean you don't hang out with people who don't have self-control or whose lifestyles are absolutely shattered. You can leave your native thing and step into where they live and walk with them for a moment, but that's not supposed to be your inner circle, right? Then you step back into this circle. John Wesley and George Whitfield. George Whitfield is the guy on, well, obviously, I guess I labeled him. There we go, Tim. 
the guy on the right, you notice there's hecklers in the trees like blowing trumpets to try to, to, try to distract him because they're so mad, they hate him so bad. And then over here are people like just filled with, with repentance and they're just giving their lives to Christ. Whenever Whitfield would come to a town, a huge crowd would come and some people would come to mock him. I think it was one of our founding fathers didn't even believe that the Bible was literally true. Uh, who was it? Um, I'm, I, this is just like off the top of my head. It's not in my notes. So I remember him saying, uh, whichever guy this was, it was the guy who did the demythologizing of the Bible. He liked Jesus's parables. He liked Jesus's moral teachings, but he didn't think any of the miracles were true. He, so his Bible was like all cut up. And he said that when he heard George Whitfield preach, because Whitfield was British, came to America and preached some revival services, some evangelistic services. And he said, uh, if I had taken my wallet, I would have given him everything I had. He was so moving. I was so inspired. This man, I've never heard a man speak like this. Whitfield was so anointed by the Holy Spirit to invite people to receive Jesus. But then Whitfield, like so many people, was heartbroken to find that when he came back a year later, how few had followed through with God on the commitment. How few were still walking with the Lord. How few were actually still attending churches. How few had left the sin behind that they had repented of and left behind that day. He was so disturbed by this. And he contacted his friend, John Wesley, and said, I need you to be my, I need, we need to be the one-two punch. I can get him saved, but I can't seem to take him further. And you, you have this incredible ability you're not the powerful public speaker, although Wesley was really gifted, but not like Whitfield. Whitfield was weird, rare, once every 500 years kind of a gift. But Wesley, he could disciple them. He could organize them into little groups that would meet in homes weekly. He was very careful. He never wanted to start the Methodist church. That was actually against his will. He wanted to start little groups within the Anglican church that would strengthen the Anglican church, that would, would bring people to a robust holiness, that would actually transform and, and bring the whole church to a, to a higher level of health. He never wanted to separate from the Anglicans and start the Methodists. So he, he never had services. He never allowed any of his groups to hold services that competed with the established church. His, re, his goal was to revive the church, not to plant a new one. But his gift, his brilliance, was he realized Christianity only works socially. Of course it must be personal, but it's never individual. Do you get the difference? It has to be personal, deeply, genuinely believed by the individual. But everyone on a solo mission, like I say here so many times, soldiers that go on solo missions seldom return. We're meant for a tribe. So he would organize them into little groups that would, that would meet in the middle of the week and in homes. And they were so intense that you guys would hate it, probably. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe you would love it. But I'm scared just telling you the first question they asked. How goes it with your soul? Since we last met, how have you sinned? in word, thought, or deed. And they expected you to answer honestly <laughs> and repent 
and receive forgiveness, and on we go. His disciples, he could get 10 saved. By the time he came back, there were 30. Instead of get 300 saved and come back next year and there's four. So Whitfield said, Wesley, I need you to come with me. With a one-two punch. Now, here's the crazy thing, guys. Whitfield was a Calvinist. We would say he was a Baptist. And Wesley was very much not. They disagreed profoundly. But man, they loved each other. And I love, I love those kind of little stories. Nowadays, you know, if we disagree about something, it's like we're not allowed to like each other. Some nonsense, you know? I just said a little bit ago that when they put sensors on the brains of people who you would think, oh, that bias, the most self-control, they were actually experiencing the, less, the least amount of temptation. So let's talk about that. The brain's neural highways. The brain's neural networks are flexible. It's like a little roadway system of electrical signals. They're always trying to find an efficient route. And so when you develop a new skill, that's really hard. The reason that when I'm playing guitar, both hands suddenly feel left-handed if I'm a new person at it. Like the pick feels awkward. The thumb, where do you, I put the fingers. Everything is so new. The whole thing feels left-handed. But fast forward six months and, and it feels very natural. The strumming patterns start to be automatic. I remember when I was trying to learn how to sing and play at the same time, it just like, I remember my brother-in-law getting frustrated with me. I used to hear my, little, my big sister, Melody, practice piano, and she would make the same mistake every time. But instead of just working on the area she was struggling with, she'd go back to the beginning and play the part she already could play well and then make the same mistake again. And I just wanted to come in and say, just work on this part right here. Stop. Just stop with this repeating the whole thing. Because every time you do it, it feels like you're doing it to me. <laughs> you're doing it to me. And I can't fix it because they're your hands. You fix this. Anyway, but the brain, when, when we learn new skills, the brain has to rework new neural pathways. And when the brain, when we send the brain enough signals that say, we're going to use this skill all the time, then it goes, oh, really? And it starts to strengthen those signals. The more you repeat an activity that's that, over and over, then the brain says, well, we don't want to waste energy on this. Let's just, let's just, starts as a little dirt path. And then the brain goes, oh, you're really going to walk here. We better pave this. So they pave it, and they go, oh, my word, now there's a lot of traffic. We better, we better add more lanes. So the brain adds more lanes. And you can actually map this stuff in the brain. The neural pathways get very, very busy and strong in those areas you use constantly. So the things you do constantly literally rewires your brain. And so the unbroken daily repetition, it does, your brain doesn't know are the behaviors good for you or bad for you but it will reward the things you repeat. You can get to the point that the unnatural behavior, like not eating carbs and sugar, is easier. Your brain will actually create friction when you try to get off the road once it's fully formed. And they say 30-some days to start to really rewire it, but 64 days to have that be a genuine habit, to where it's no longer just a routine, it's a habit. And I like to say it this way, I think I have it on the board behind me, tasks, they start as tasks, but then we make them into routines, and once we really work those with, and you gotta, you gotta not quit. 
You, you can't have cheat days. Cheat days slow your progress down like crazy. Yeah, cheat days will mess you up. You gotta stop with the compromising if you wanna form new habits. But Because it's like 64 days in a row with no cheat days. That's the, that's the shortcut, right? So these people who are like halfway trying to get off smoking, they got Nicorette and they're still smoking a little bit, they're playing games, bro. These people who try to get off heroin and they're using the other stuff instead of heroin, they're still playing games, bro. You know? It's just cutting this out a little and this out of that little, cut that. This is why I think that like the hardcore crazy fad diets that are not even healthy long-term get popular because we kind of intuit. We kind of know we got to make a clean break. But how about we make a clean break with it, go to something sustainable, not something that's like, what are you going to do after you eat nothing but raw meat for six months? That's not sustainable. I got to tell you guys a quick story about raw meat. Oh, my word. I'm just going to read this to you. I'm headed right over to Facebook Messenger for a moment. Yeah, raw meat. This is a raw hamburger story. Crazy cousin humor. My cousins, we talk a lot. Okay. Jeremy says this. We used to think that a pinch of raw hamburger with salt was a treat. One night when mom was gone, she left us at home to make hamburgers for supper. So we begged dad to just let us have just raw hamburger. And because mom was gone, he did. Then Ian says, LOL, did you like it when it was your whole supper? Jeremy, I just remember being thrilled about it. In retrospect, I don't know why. Jonathan, my dad also enjoys the raw hamburger. I'll pass. Shane, I believe dad has changed his habits and is now taking generous precautions by putting it in the microwave for 40 seconds, just enough to heat the edges till they're starting to brown. I went to the Grandpa Dave Facebook page and I put the screenshot with permission, but I told on Uncle Ellis and then Nathan was like, and I I tagged Nathan, I said, you're implicated in this too. And he's like, hey, whoa, I wasn't at that thing at all. How am I involved? And I said, Jonathan said, you also like it too. And he goes, fine, I admit. I admit that I do like to taste raw beef before it has been chemically altered by searing and perverting heat. And I like to imbibe with a little bit of vinegar and some sodium chloride. And he said, trust me. And I'm like, bro, bro. But there's people who like like everything raw. Everything, that's not a sustainable print layout. That's not a sustainable diet. Okay, so yes to whole hog, but no to, like, let's not do something that is not sustainable long-term. This absolutely blew, changed my life. This man right here, this theme, this message changed my life. Thomas Chalmers wrote a little book called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And in that book, he's asking the question, how do we change? And he basically says, if your goal is stop sinning, you're going to find you can't. But as you fall in love with Jesus, you're going to find you've fallen out of love with other things. Don't fight sin. Fall in love with Jesus. And you'll fall out of love with sin. Because sin's not just outward activity. It's loving the wrong thing. Jesus says you can't serve God and mammon. You're either going to hate one master and be devoted to the other or vice versa because the heart doesn't work any other way. Oh. So all I have to do is fall in love with you and I will fall out of love with your competitors? 
Yes. Paul says the law provokes sin. When a Christian gets under the law, suddenly don't sin becomes the focus, which means sin becomes the focus, which means, ooh, look at that sin. Next thing you know, you're all day not sinning today. I'm not sinning. I'm not going to do it. And then, then your willpower exhausts that tank that I talked about. <laughs> right? Let's just pretend it's food and not something worse. <laughs> you know what I mean? Whereas, when you're under grace, you're not standing around all day thinking, I'm not going to sin today. Hope I don't sin today. You're thinking, I get to know God today. I get to belong to the Father today. I get to walk with Him. I get to hear His voice. Ah, I'm so stinking blessed. It's crazy. You're thinking him. All temptation is a preaching of a false gospel. All temptation is saying what? Eat from me and live. I promise you future pleasure if you'll eat. The true gospel says the same thing. Eat from me and live. I promise you future pleasure if you'll eat. Temptation is a preaching of a false gospel. And the thing that kills temptation is the believing of the true gospel. That's all Thomas Chalmers is saying. Fighting sin is not effective. Falling in love with Jesus is effective. Romans 7, I don't understand what I do. I, don't, you know, I do the thing I hate and not the thing I love, a wretched man that I am. That is not the normal Christian life. That is the life under the law. The normal Christian life is Romans 8. No condemnation in Christ Jesus. And in that place of no condemnation, the, power, the, the principle of grace has now sent the spirit down and it's broken us free of the enslaving power of sin. <sighs> That's why Paul doesn't say, stop sinning, you're a Christian. It's why he asks this question. How could you possibly go on sinning once you died to sin? It's a totally different mindset. And it's why he never tells you to finish what Jesus already finished. What he tells you to, to do is to believe what Jesus finished. Now reckon yourselves dead to sin. Why? Because it's a fact. Already done. And you go, what? But how come I relate to Romans 7? Because you're living under the laws. Why? Anytime a Christian relates to Romans 7, you know you're back under the law. This is Colossians uh, 2.23. It says, such regulations indeed have the appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Interesting thing. In other words, extreme harsh religious practices. You're going to memorize this many passages. You're, not, you're going to avoid these foods on these days. You're going to fast this many times a week. You're going to give this much money to the church. You're going to memorize, you, you know, and this is why I get real nervous when people, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and I'm going to do the other. And I'm like, I hope you just go after relationship. I want you to be disciplined. But there's a certain form of discipline that is more about self. I'm, I'm fixing me or I'm, I don't know. Instead of putting yourself in a place of availability to receive and drink and grow and freedom. And, and so it's like, listen to the Lord. <laughs> Each one of you, please mind the Lord is what Steve Swartz tells me. I think that's fun. That's mind the Lord. That's language you can use. That's charismatic language that you can use in a Mennonite church. Because if I said, listen to the Holy Spirit's voice, they'd be like, I don't know about all that. Don't drink that Kool-Aid. But if you say, mind the Lord, then suddenly they're with you. They're like, okay, that's good language. But that's, that's right. Each of us has to mind the Lord. 
He might call us for a season to do something with discipline. And then, man, this, this broke my mold. Davy Slaybaugh, when I was in REACH, our short-term missions program, he said that he took a break from reading the Bible because it had become legalism. And I was so concerned for him. I was so concerned for his soul. Now I look back and I go, he was right and I was legalistic. It had become a practice that was no longer about relationship, but was about proving something to himself or God. It had become earning, and grace is the opposite of earning every time. It's never the opposite of effort, but it's always the opposite of earning. And if you find that your effort is now becoming from a root of earning, you got to just, okay, Jesus, it's about knowing you. Stan talked about that recently. He felt called away from it, and then he felt called back to it. You got to mind the Lord. Self-discipline is not identical to the self-control that is the fruit of the Spirit. I'll say it again. Self-discipline is not identical to the self-control that is the fruit of the Spirit. It is possible to be a very self-disciplined person and not have that have anything to do with the fruit of the Spirit. We're not just interested in self-mastery. We're interested in being able to surrender to the mastery of Jesus. That's what we're interested in. As helpful as Jocko is, and, I, and he's very helpful, he's not exactly talking about the fruit of the Spirit, is he? Because what we're talking about is relationship with Jesus, relationship with Heavenly Father, relationship with Holy Spirit that kills the addictive power of sin. That's what we're talking about. The Holy Spirit has made us free from the slavery to sin so that now we can say yes to him. If he says this, go here. If he says this, go there. Because until we can tell ourselves no, we really can't tell him yes, can we? He frees us so that we can. All right, so let's talk about roadblocks. Why can't I change? Only the Lord can really answer that question. I just told you at the beginning, I wasn't even sure how I changed. And I'm still not, even though I ventured a bunch of guesses. How the gospel works has a lot of mystery to it. And how the gospel doesn't work, and I don't mean it's the gospel's fault. What's blocking me from really receiving the gospel so that it works is often pretty mysterious for me as well. But the Lord knows. It's not a mystery to him. So these are just Tim's, Tim's things that I've learned. Half measures don't work. If your eye causes you to sin, Jesus says to pluck it out of your head and toss it on the ground. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. That's Jesus. And then I got guys telling me, Tim, I wish I, I, wish I didn't look at porn. And I'm like, well, did you get rid of internet? No, I wouldn't either because I love internet. Well, would you get rid of your smartphone? If that seems to be the thing that you always got right there in your pocket, would you be willing to get rid of your smartphone? Would you go back to a dumb phone? Just an old flip phone? Well, no. Okay, so you're, you're really not done with sin. What I said is not even that extreme. It feels extreme, but it's not. I want to get free of this. Are you willing to move into this teen challenge program and spend a full year there away from your family and your job? Well, not really. I'm just going to try this thing. I'm hoping Jesus is going to do it. Bro. And that, but you got to let people make their own choices. So, But 
half measures, what I've learned, half measures don't work. Why? Because the heart can only serve one master at a time. So you got a whole hog with one master or the other. Let's go. Either Jesus or mammon. Right? Let's pick one. Pick a God and full, whole hog. Uh, oh, boy. I'll read the whole passage. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Short-term pleasure, long-term pain, or short-term pain, long-term pleasure. That's the first one. Uh, halfway measures don't work. Second thing that I've noticed, motivations really matter. It's not just what you want, it's why you want what you want. Like we can get rid of drunkenness and replace it with pride and money, meaning the love of money. And then we come out of it with even worse sins but are socially respectable. So we had socially, oh, that guy's a jerk sins, what an idiot. We replaced it, not with Jesus, but I just wanted to use Jesus to get this from Jesus. Now that I'm free of that, whew, now I can make all this money and have nice cars and houses and, and be somebody important and I'm better than these other people who are idiots. Look, I could get myself free. They couldn't, morons. Now I'm actually worse than before, but I look better. So I've replaced these sins with those sins, looking better and getting worse. Motivations matter. Is knowing God the motivation? Is pleasing God the goal? Or are we using Jesus as a stepping stone to achieve our agenda? Hey, thanks, Jesus, as we step on his head and walk past him. Appreciate it. That is the picture I tend to use when I'm at Teen Challenge and usually annoys them because they're like, but that's how I got saved. And I'm like, that's how you got saved. That's not how you stayed once you got saved. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? A lot of us get saved. And then once we meet Jesus, we realize the thing we wanted him to do wasn't near extreme enough. Hey, fix this tiny area of my life. And he's like, I want to fix the whole thing. Also, I want to be in the center of your life. Also, I'm moving in. Also, all that stuff's moving out. <laughs> Whoa, what are you doing? That's a U-Haul. Where's my stuff going? What's this stuff? What are we doing? He's like, I'm moving in, bro. Third thing that gets in the way that doesn't work. Uh, half measures don't work. Motivations matter. The friendship and the fear. I've talked about this in here before, about the fear of the Lord, how incredibly healthy and happy the fear of the Lord is, Right? how good it is, but I'm saying the friendship and the fear. The friendship with the Lord is super healthy, super healthy. The fear of the Lord is super healthy, but I think that if you had the fear of the Lord without the friendship of the Lord, I think that's bad and dangerous and unhealthy. And I think if you have the friendship with the, with the Lord without the fear of the Lord, that's super bad and unhealthy. And I think some people have the fear and so they don't fall in love. And there's something where they stay at a distance and then certain areas of their life don't get touched because they're at a distance. And then there's people who have the friendship with Jesus, but they don't reverence him. So they withhold obedience in certain areas because they, I don't, I'm, I'm probably messing this up with that, but I just, there's something there where those have to be held together. They seem like opposites, but they're really, really helpful together. You guys seem to understand that better than me because you're nodding, so... Tribe and stream matters tons. So sometimes when people change, it's a simply a matter of they have idiots for friends and they're not, in a good, they're not in a good community. And just going to a church, I know last Sunday I said just pick a church near you and learn to love them. But the, tr the truth of the matter is you've got to have an inner circle of friends somewhere in your life that is hungry for the things that, that the Lord's placed in you to go after and live for. Streams matter. Tribes matter. Friends matter. So like 
We heard Chris Vallotton talk about the power of culture. It's like, the, it's like the current of a river. And he said, when people are in their Bethel culture, which is so focused on obeying the Holy Spirit and enjoying sonship with God and, and like seeing God touch people's lives and, and do the stuff that Jesus does in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the book of Acts, that when people are in the Bethel culture, there's such a current that's flowing in, in this direction that people, people start to see miracles, they see breakthrough, they see freedom, they see God's acceptance of them. They have old sins they've been holding on to wiped clear. They have newer levels of faith. Their understanding of the Bible increases. They start to share with evangelism. They see healings in public and they go, oh yeah. And they think they're making huge progress. And then they step out of Bethel's culture and go back to their home church. And suddenly everything goes back the way it was. And they go, I must have sinned. What did I do wrong? Because they took credit for that accelerated movement. When you're in a river, it's like, you know those things at the airport, those moving walkways? And like, when you, you can just walk slowly and you'll be flying. Or you can hold still and you're still moving forward. Heck, you could walk slowly backwards and still be moving forward. In fact, you would have to intentionally be walking the wrong direction to hold still. And that's how culture works. There's some cultures that are so hard that for you to see good fruit, you have to do five times what somebody in some other context has to do. There are some streams that are so headed the wrong way. So like, and I, my, my cousin Jeremy was talking with Brian Zond and he's like, what's, he was so frustrated. And Brian Zond was like, Jeremy, I think Jesus on Judgment Day is going to open his book. Did I already tell you this story recently? I feel like I did. Jesus on Judgment Day is going to open his book. He's going to say, Miller, 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 Jeremy. Okay, here you go. Oh, late 20, early 21st century. Ah, oh, Bible Belt, America, Ohio, Mennonite. Oh, brother, let's see what you got here. You never stole. You never cheated on your wife. You didn't get compromised with politics. Look at you. You stood. Whew. Son, this was one of the hardest contexts in history. Well done. Well done. And Jeremy's like, really though? Because he's looking at who else. Who did, was I able to bring enough with me? Was I able to bring him along and look like the kingdom of Jesus? Right? The Christ looking kingdom. Not just, the, not just get him saved. The, the kingdom that looks like Jesus. And he's going, oh, failing. And Brian Zahn's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Jesus grades on a curve based on how hard your situation is. Being faithful looks different in different places. Tribe matters. Number five, grace is a key. And by key, I mean it unlocks a door. And I don't know how it works, guys. I just know it's, I know it's true. I was struggling with sexual sin. Not a relationship with someone, just a stronghold of lust. I'm a young Christian. I'm in my what? early 20s. Now, I could have gone after books about that, every man's battle or whatever. I could have gone focused on the topic, learning about the topic. I didn't. Still to this day, I'm not interested really in spending a whole lot of time on that. Instead of reading books about sin, I studied a book called Grace Walk, which was all about the gospel, which was all about how I'm under grace, not law. And in that book, which really focused me in on Galatians, so I started reading Galatians really intensely during that time, 
So I'm reading Grace Walk by Steve McVeigh, and I'm reading Galatians, and I'm coming to an understanding that I'm not under law, but I'm under grace, that Jesus isn't looking at me and saying, if you've earned my love well enough today, then I'll accept you. But rather, he's looking at me and saying, even though you haven't walked perfectly today, your faith is in Christ, and you're 100% accepted as though you were perfect today. And I realized that even if I screwed up and sinned every single day the rest of my life, and that, but, I, but I didn't want to, I mean, I did want to, but I didn't want to. And I came back and said, I'm sorry. I just want to belong to you. I don't know what's wrong with me that, it wasn't going to, that God was never going to change his mind about, about me. And something about that revelation, that feeling that I was in some sense no longer in danger of losing my place in the family. And I'm telling you right now, that's terrifying to some mindsets. Some people are like, if you tell people that, they're going to go right out and sin. Like, I didn't want to go out and sin. I just wanted to walk with God. I just wanted to understand what Paul was trying to say in Galatians. I just wanted to understand. And I wanted to please the Lord. I wasn't looking for a hall pass for sin. And he was telling me, you're not earning this. You didn't, you know, and, they, and he, you know, these phrases like nothing you could do could make God love you more. Now, if you believe that, let's add another truth to that. Nothing you could ever do could make God love you more. You believe that? Now, for real, do you believe that? Nothing you could ever do would make God love you more than he loves you right now. Let's put this one then up here. That nothing you could ever do would make God love you less? You believe that? Uh, we say we believe this stuff, don't we? And something happened. I'm studying grace. And something happened. The next thing you know, I'm not struggling with lust anymore. I'm struggling with falling in love with Jesus. And I'm out dancing under the stars in the same kind of season of my life where other good stuff started to really break loose. That's interesting. Why would studying about grace give me victory over sexual sin? Well, it doesn't surprise Paul. <laughs> you know, he just kind of chuckles and goes, that's my Jesus. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, grace is a key. And final point to the person who says, but I know grace and I'm still struggling. And I would say, um, it takes time. Sanctification is a lifelong process and it begins the moment of salvation and it's ongoing. One of these verses that just knocked my, just, just blew me away as I'm a baby Christian is the verse in Hebrews 10 that says that by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever. That's already just huge. By one sacrifice, Jesus has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. It's like, it's a process. I'm being made holy. But the whole time I'm being made holy, I'm all the way in. And I'm in no danger of falling out of it. You know, some people are like, are you saying that a believer can't fall away? And I just look at him and I say, well, I ain't gonna. If you feel like you need to believe that you're in super bad danger of falling away, I'm not going to argue with you because there's some clear verses that give us warnings. But they don't apply to me because I ain't going anywhere. I'm done for. If it was me that got me into this, I would have never got into it in the first place and I would have certainly fallen away by now because I'm too dumb to do it on my own in myself. The new me ain't, if you catch what I mean by that. The old me was never going to get in on this thing. This was never my idea. This was never your idea. But I just, you know, what if he's patient with us? What if we're allowed to accept and learn how to be patient with us too? Oh, Tim feels like you're just giving us permission to, 
sin. Your heart won't do that. Your heart wants to love God. But what do you do with your heart wanting to love God so bad that now it's starting to be an autoimmune disorder? You need grace for yourself. You know all about autoimmune disorders. The body eats itself. My asthma's an autoimmune disorder. Her lupus is an autoimmune disorder. Shame and guilt can be an autoimmune disorder where your desire to please Jesus gets twisted by the enemy and turned into condemnation. Now you feel like a failure instead of realizing the fact that you're sorry means you're born again and brand new. So I don't know the answer to why, <laughs> why can't I change? I don't know. I know half measures don't work, that motivations matter. I know that reverence and friendship are supposed to go, to, to go together. And sometimes introducing the friendship will cause someone who's buckled in fear to grow. Sometimes introducing reverence will cause someone who's got a fluffy pup, pup uh, like a Santa Claus God to, <laughs> to grow. Wrong friends, I know that grace is a key and sometimes people just aren't in love with God yet because they don't really have a loving vision. They don't have a God who loves them back. They're just trying to love a God they don't love. It takes grace to open that one. And I know that it takes time for all of us to change. That is what I have on the topic of self-control.